So let's get into the message today. It's kind of an interesting one. I don't want to give anything away, but it's, it, we're going we're gonna to go a lot of different directions here. But we're going to talk, as we have been the last few weeks, on vision. The series that we're in is called 2020. It's the year 2020, and we're talking about having perfect vision in your life, what that looks like. And today we'll look at some of the benefits of perfect vision in your life and how you can uh, have impact in your life and through your life as we look for this vision that God has for us. So as we're doing, what we're doing every week is looking, first of all, at the kind of vision we want to have as a church, what kind of church we want to be, and we're going to see that every week in this series. We're going to take the same idea that we're looking at church-wide and trying to apply it to our personal lives as followers of Jesus. How, what kind of Christ follower should I be? What, what kind of uh, attributes should I project in my life to make Jesus great through me, to make him famous through my life, to make him known through what I do? So we're looking at vision uh, generally by looking at a very specific vision, and that is John's revelation. So the book of Revelation is a vision that John has, who was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. He's exiled on this island as an old man, and Jesus appears to him and shows him a vision of things that are yet to come. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know that there's a lot there. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of uh, number things. There's a lot of things that are just strange. But we're going to focus specifically just in this series on the first three chapters of this vision that John has, this revelation that he has. Because what's interesting about this vision is while it is about things that are to come in the future, Jesus, who gives this vision to John, also has messages to seven, seven different churches that are in this region. And they're not just random churches that Jesus decides, oh, I'm going to give a message to this church and maybe that church, but there's a purpose behind them because all seven churches that are listed and given a message to John from Jesus are, are churches that John had pastored earlier in his life. So we looked at the first one last week, Pergamum, and today we're going to look at the church in the city called Thyatira. This is where we're going to pick up. Um, and so Thyatira is actually mentioned one other place in the Bible in Acts chapter 16. There's a woman named Lydia uh, who Paul meets in the city of Philippi, and it says she's from Thyatira. And it says that she, we assume from what we know about her, she's fairly wealthy because she traded in purple dyes and clothing, which is expensive. One, one historian said that one pound of this dye that you would dye fabric with would have cost about a thousand days wages. One pound of this dye would have cost about a thousand days wages, like over two and a half years it would cost you to start this business. That's a pretty big investment. And so this woman, Lydia, from this town, Thyatira, sells in these purple, or really a dark red is more accurate term, uh, garments. And so we'll see how that fits this town here in just a minute. But John started a church here in this uh, city later on. And Jesus, in this revelation to John, has a message for this church. And so we're going to read through it today. Last week, we read the whole thing at once and unpacked it. Today, we're going to kind of go section by section in this little bit longer message that Jesus has for this church in Thyatira. So we're picking it up at Revelation chapter 2, verse number 18. So if you have your Bible or app or whatever, you can follow along. And we'll read the first couple verses here. Revelation 2, starting at verse 18. Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, 
and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. So today, the main idea that we're going to look at is impact. How Jesus talks about the impact this church had and different aspects of their existence that will impact their future impact. I'm going to use that word a lot today, so just get used to it. If you want to keep a track of how many times I say the word impact, go for it, all right? So we're going to look and see also how this message applies to us a couple thousand years later, how our impact is important and how we, our, our lives affect our impact. So the first idea that I want us to look at in these first two verses about impact are this. Small church does not equal small impact. That's the first message here in these two verses that Jesus wants us to understand. So how do we know that this church was small? Well, we know it because the town was very small. Thyatira is a very small town. It is insignificant, to say the least. Now, its claim to fame is a couple of things. First, there's a lot of tr- it's a huge trade city, even though it's small, because it sits at the entrance of a valley. And we talked about Pergamum, this large, important Roman city last week. So Thyatira is about 40 miles away from Pergamum, who is a major city. So historically, you read about Thyatira, and, you'd say, and it, they talk about, well, it's sort of this defense city. You think, well, that's cool. They have like an army base and they have a lot of warriors. That's not really what they mean when they say it's a defense city. What they mean by that is this small town is very much expendable because the larger city, 40 miles away, they're going to see this town burn first (laughs) and they're going to know trouble's coming. We have to get ready. So Thyatira is just kind of a a speed bump on the way to a larger town. It's kind of like the town I grew up in. Very small rural town, uh, lots, you know, more tobacco farms than people, uh, you know, small community. Everybody knows everybody and everybody's business all the time. You know, we get a weekly paper every Wednesday. It's mainly gossip. You know, it's mainly Susie saw Deborah do this, and she wanted to tell the person at the newspaper office about it. So that's kind of, I can relate to this town. This is where I'm from. This feels like home to me. It's like people, so again, it's 40 miles from the nearest large town, again, just like where I grew up. And even people in that town 40 miles away probably never heard of the town I lived in my whole life. That's, that's kind of where, uh, where we find ourselves. John started a church in a small, insignificant, expendable town just like that. But Jesus says, I know your works. I see what you've done. You may not think it's a big deal, but I see it, and it's so important, I'm kind of putting you in the Bible. That's pretty cool, right? This small little church in this small little town gets in the Bible. They are famous forever. Jesus says, I see your works. You're a church that loves. You're a church that serves. You have patient endurance. You're like maxing out your potential. You're maxing out your impact. Small church does not have to equal small impact. Not only that, he says, you're growing in your impact. He says, you're doing even more than you did at the beginning. He's, he's, he's really saying, patting them on the back big time, saying, you don't think that you're that significant. You don't think that you're that important, but I see the work that you're doing. Can I just tell you that I believe Jesus would have the same message for this church? Kind of in a small area of a large city, small in number, but that doesn't mean that our significant has to be small. Our our impact has to be small. So what we have never done and what we will never do is use any reason as an excuse why we can't make an impact. 
well, we're a pretty young church, so we really can't do a lot, and we have a small budget, so we can't do a whole lot, and there's not a ton of us, and so we can't do a whole lot. We will never use that as an excuse for not making an impact. We will always do everything we can to max our potential, to maximize our impact. Now, if you want to compare it to a large church, we may not do on its face as much as a church five, six, ten times our size. That's not, we're not in a comparison. This is not a race against people around us or churches around us. Our calling is our own. Our mission is our own to max out our potential and maximize our impact with what we have. We do what we can with what we have where we are. That's how you maximize your impact. So it's the same for your life too. Because you might say, well, I'm not well-connected, and I'm not well-resourced, and I don't know that my life really has a lot of impact, or I don't have a lot of significance. And I would say, baloney, you have influence. You can make an impact. Use what you have where you are. Do what you can with what you have where you are. That's how your life can really count for something. Jesus will look at your life one day and say, hey, you maxed out. Like you gave it all you had. You made it count for something bigger than yourself. That's what we want. We want to look back at the end of our life or look back in eternity at, at what we accomplished. Not because I had everything or could do everything, but because I let the Holy Spirit do something bigger than I could ever do. I didn't have any excuses. Well, I can't do this or I can't do that or I won't even attempt to make an impact. It's like, well... If we, if we make the effort, God will provide what we lack. And he'll look at that and say, hey, you did it. You maxed out your potential. You maxed out your impact on other people, and it made a difference. Small church does not mean small impact. Small you, small me doesn't mean small impact. No matter what we think about ourselves, our influence, our capability, it doesn't mean that we can't do something great for Jesus. So then he goes on, the next verse, we're going to kind of get to now sort of a more negative part, but it's important, all right? Revelation 2, verse 20, he goes on to say this, but, there's a a but here, a big but, all right? But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols, So the second thing about impact that we see here that's not as fun but is equally important is integrity affects impact. So we've established from the outset we want to have maximum impact, but that requires something on our part to see that happen, and it's integrity. So like last week, he mentioned two Old Testament characters to illustrate his point. He does the same thing in this example in this church. He uses this name Jezebel. You probably know all about her. If you don't know about her, let's just recap very quickly how evil this person was. So Jezebel uh, was this foreign woman who King Ahab of Israel married, even though he should never, like, so many red flags here with this woman, and yet he, he entered this relationship with her anyway. So immediately she has a negative impact on Israel. She leads them into idol worship and sexual immorality, which is what is named here. Uh, and she like, literally tries to kill every true prophet of God, including most famously Elijah. She literally chases him around the country for months and years trying to kill him because she knows the influence and impact that he has for good. And if I can get rid of him, then I can control everything. And that was part of her. She was very controlling, very manipulative in, her, in nature. 
One story that's very uh, interesting is, so next door to the palace was this guy named Naboth. He had a little plot of land that he had a vineyard on. King Ahab decided, I'd really like to have an an extra garden for the palace. I'm going to ask my neighbor if he will sell his land to me. So the king goes over to his neighbor and says, hey, would you sell your land to me? I'll give you like more than you could ever get otherwise for it. His neighbor says, I'd rather not because it's the only inheritance I have left from my family, so I'd really like to keep it. And the king's like, okay, fine. But then he goes home and pouts, literally lays on his bed and pouts about not getting his way. He is a child, okay? He's a man baby wearing a crown, running a country. It's the worst. Then he gets home and Jezebel, you know, makes him feel even worse. She demasculates him again. She says, Dude, you're such a baby. You're such a whiner. Aren't you the king? Like, if you want it, take it. Who's going to stop you? And he's like, well, he said I could have it, and I really want it. And she's like, oh, just go back to bed. I'll get it for you. So she sets up a trap to kill her next-door neighbor just to get his little plot of land that they want for themselves. They call this feast together. They sit him at the head of the table. She hires two dudes to sit on either side of him that accuse him of blasphemy and all sorts of other things, and then they kill him. It's a setup. So she gets what she wants any way she can. This is the kind of woman that Jesus tells John, hey, this sort of activity is creeping into this church here. Not this one, right? And not ours. Uh, Hopefully not, right? But in Thyatira. It's creeping in here. He's saying, I see the same sorts of things that you would understand in this woman's history in this church. He lists the same two sins we looked at last week, which are food sacrifice to idols and also sexual perversion. So if you want to hear more about that in detail, check out last week's message because I'm not going to get into it again today. It's too depressing. So the same two sins are listed as the previous church. However, they're being committed for different reasons. So the church in Pergamum last week, there was literal danger in not worshiping false gods and engaging in um, sin, sinful worship behavior of these false gods. They were literally being killed for not doing so. This church in Thyatira is different in that it's more social pressure to cave on their beliefs. Social pressure. Here's why. Thyatira is known, again, being at the entrance of a valley. They are not a, they're not a large town, but their main source of income is trade. Being in, in front of these other large cities, everybody's going to come through the valley. They're going to have to come through this small town. So they trade everything you can imagine in this small town. That is their main way of making money in this town. So with, the, with this industry being prevalent in this little town, uh, culturally what would happen in this time period is you would have trade guilds, which still might be common, but you would have these guilds. Now, we'd say, what's the big deal about that? Who cares about being part of a trade guild? Well, in this ancient culture, every guild of every sort of kind had its own god that it would worship to receive blessing on that industry. So these trade guilds would have their own different gods they would have to worship in the ways described here, both just in idol worship and also through sexual sin. We talked about last week as part of that worship of the false god. So you have these people in this church trying to follow Jesus, knowing what that means. He is the only God. We don't serve any other gods. We can't behave the other way like the people around us do. But they know that if I want to survive and thrive in my business, I might have to do that. 
Because if I don't serve this God, he may not bless my business. If I don't worship this God in this way, I might lose my job or be kicked out of the guild that I'm a part of, and my business is going to fail miserably very quickly. So their livelihood then is dependent upon worshiping of false gods, engaging in this sinful behavior that the culture around them engages in. There's social pressure to cave on their faith. There's social pressure to give in to what they know is not right to still do it. So the call here for them is to have integrity in their business and in their life to be the same everywhere they go and have the same beliefs and not cave for any sort of social reason or under any sort of social pressure. I would say that this pressure, as compared to last week, is much more prevalent in our current culture. To this point, there is little, there's little threat of a Christian being killed in this country. Now, in other countries, that's different, but here where we live, that's not common. But there is all sorts of social pressure to cave on your faith. All the time, constantly, there is all sort from every different direction, from sources you would never assume would give that pressure to you. It happens all the time. Some ways it's obvious, some ways it's not so obvious, but the pressure is always there. So we have the same call. If we want to be people of impact, we have to maintain integrity. So what does that look like? It means, again, for a church, we want to maintain our integrity by not giving into social pressure. So it will increasingly the things that we believe, even as a group here, are going to seem like they're sort of oppressive, seem like they're sort of outdated, seem like they're, you know, cramming people's style. You can't tell me how to live or what to do. It's like, hey, what I've believed has not changed for thousands of years. The culture around is the one that is changing slash deteriorating. I don't see the problem here, right? I see the consistency on, on my end here and a an inconsistency on the, the culture around us. But that's what's going to happen. There's going to be increasing cu- uh, cultural pressure to kind of cave. And it's the same personally with each one of us. The stronger that we are in our faith, the more pressure we probably are going to feel. Like the more that people know that you believe what you believe, the more arrows are going to come slinging your way. So we want to maintain that integrity, be pe- the same person at work that we are right now. Right? Be the same person in our neighborhood that we are, we'd be here in this place. Like it's not, we're not trying to live double lives. We're not trying to, you know, live a certain way in a certain setting and a different way in a different setting. To have impact means to have we have to have that integrity to get that result. Because as much as people will try to resist that in our lives, as much as culture will try to pressure us to cave, when they see that we're not caveable, that means something. They will eventually say, okay, you know what, I disagree, but I respect that. That's huge. It's not going to happen if we, if we try to be chameleons with our lives. Well, I'm going to be this kind of person in this setting at, with this group, and I'm going to be totally different over here. So we want to be people of integrity to maintain and have impact. So here, let's, let's move on here with uh, another part of this uh, letter, this message to this church. This is picking up at verse number 21, Revelation 2, 21. So Jesus talks about their sin. He points out their, their shortcomings, and here's what he says. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Whoa, Jesus, hang on a second, man. Wow. 
Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give each of you whatever you deserve. I don't want that. I don't want what I deserve. That's not what I want. I want grace, all right? He goes on to say this, but also I have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. So here we see the impact and really the importance of repentance. So this church is starting to sort of fall away, peel away. They're not maintaining their integrity as a group or as individuals that make up that church. And he's saying, hey, I'm calling you to turn. So the idea of repentance means a change of heart that leads to a change of action. That's what that word repentance means. It's a change of heart that leads to a change of action. And really the core of the meaning of that word is it's a 180 degree turn from the direction that you're currently going to a brand new direction. He's calling us to turn from sin and walk in a different direction. That's what Jesus is asking this church to do. Now, repentance is important, and it affects our impact because we don't always get everything right. Anybody else in here besides me not perfect? All right? So so we can kind of relate to this. There are times where we really fall short. There are seasons that we fall really distant from the plan that we know God has for us or the will that we feel like he has for us. Like we, we sometimes will sense that distance or, or, or that, th- that roadblock in our lives that requires repentance. So as we see here, repentance can have an impact, but also we really read that not having repentance has an impact. Each direction has its own result. So Jesus says, hey, I've given them time to repent, I've given them a chance to repent, and they've refused. So he says the hammer is about to drop. He, so he, he talks about suffering, sickness, even death. Now, there is a question theologically. Is he talking like literally people are going to die? It's possible, right? It's possible. So if you look, let's go back. He's talking about, again, Jezebel is referencing this. Go back to Jezebel, the queen from the Old Testament. The end of her life is kind of gross, kind of gory. I'll make it kind of PG rated. I won't show any pictures, but here's what happens. So Ahab, her husband's killed in battle. So then it's just her and her two sons. Well, God chooses a different king that's not one of her two, you know, evil kids to be the next king of Israel. So as he's kind of getting his army, Ahab's two sons are then killed by some of his guys. So then he pulls up to the palace, and it's, this is 2 Kings, I believe it's chapter 8. It says, uh, the new king, Jehu, he's pulling up to his, new, his palace, and Jezebel's still living there. She basically puts her hair up and does her makeup and looks out the window and says, hi, you know. And uh, he looks up at her, and he's like, you're the worst, you know. And so he basically says, hey, is there anyone who's on my side? And it says there were three guys who are up, up in the top where Jezebel is in her room. They throw her out the window, and she goes splat on the ground. And then, uh, there, and then these other dudes' horses run her body over, just in case she wasn't dead enough the first time. And then, because this is all in a prophecy earlier about her life. God says, this is what's going to happen. That's what happened. She's thrown out the window. She's run over by horses. And then the dogs eat the flesh off of her dead body. What a way to go, right? I mean, if you're going to go, you might as well go with a bang, right? So Jezebel, this is the ending that she has. And Jesus says in similar terms, hey, if we have to like do this in some form, I, I believe partially what he's looking at here, he's talking about if this church needs to die, then I'm going to let it die. Like, if you guys can't get this, get your act together, 
I mean, it's going to be over. And he even really says, let me go back to this verse. Um, he says, then all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. So what Jesus is saying, hey, if my church can't get this, get their act together, they're going to be made an example of. And that's pretty harsh. I'm like, Jesus, what is your deal, man? Like, calm down, brother. But he's like, I'm coming for a spotless bride. Like, I'm coming for, you know, they're, when they're looking, waiting, ready for me. And if they're not, it's going to be bad. It's going to end poorly. So, again, this is kind of a downer. We'll get, we'll get to a better thing here at the end, but we have to get through this. The, the thing with this judgment is it, it seems harsh. It seems over the top. But here's what he said. I've given them plenty of time to repent. I've given them so many warnings to repent. Like, I've te- I'm telling you, like, this is kind of it. This is the last warning here that I'm giving through John, your previous pastor here, to repent. And it goes back to Revelation chapter 1. It gives this imagery of Jesus walking through what they call seven lampstands. And every one rep- and every candle on the lampstand represents one of these seven churches. The warning comes even in chapter 1. He says, hey, if you guys don't listen to this warning that you're about to receive, I'll remove the lampstand from its place. That's what he's talking about specifically to this church as well. So no repentance has its disadvantages. What we know, though, from reading anything in the Bible, and we'll give one specific example, is that repentance has an amazing impact on our lives. So we look at the first two kings of Israel, King Saul, king number one, King David is king number two. So both men were very imperfect. Both men really fell from God, disobeyed God on a huge, massive scale, but their stories ended very differently. So let's look at Saul for just a second. So Saul really committed the lesser crime, if we're honest. If we look at what he actually did versus what David actually did, Saul's thing wasn't that bad, honestly. Like they're going into battle, and the, uh, the command from God is, hey, when you go in here, I want you to kill everything. I want you to, you know, every man, woman, child, animal, kill it all. That's part of the deal here. And then he says, first, wait for the prophet to come to make a sacrifice before battle. So Saul breaks both of these commands. He's not waiting for the prophet to come. He's getting antsy. He can't wait anymore. So he takes it upon himself to make this sacrifice. God's like, strike one. You know, this is not good. And then they go into battle, and he decides they're going to keep some of the spoils of war for themselves. He keeps the king alive of the, of the opposing army kind of as a living trophy. Look, we defeated these people. We've got their king as a prisoner. Yay. And so then the prophet shows up, and he's like, God, God's not really happy with you right now. Like, he's pretty, like, Revelation chapter 2 mad at you, bro, you know, even though that hasn't happened yet. And uh, he's like, well, why didn't, you know, no, these guys around me, it was their idea. And they said this was cool, and they said it was fine. And, and he's like, what, what did God already tell you? You know, that's what, that's what the prophet says. And so at that point, God says, I'm done with you, Saul done. Your kingdom is over. Like, you're going to still be king for probably another 20 years, but your son won't be king, and you're already cut off. My blessing is removed from you. It's pretty harsh. So then we go about 40 or so years later to then David, who's been king for a while. He's kind of in his old age. He has a bit of a midlife crisis, so he has an affair with his neighbor's wife while he's at war. Gets her pregnant, tries to hide it by killing his his neighbor. Bad, bad. Tries to deny any of this happened, tries to cover it up, pretending like, oh, nothing's wrong here, nothing to see here, God. But God knew what had happened, obviously. And so then the prophet, that prophet then comes to David and says, hey, God knows what you've done. And he, again, is Revelation 2, unhappy with you right now, Dave. And he says, what are you going to do about it? 
So here's the difference between Saul and David. David continued to reign for the end of his life. David was the greatest king, earthly king in Israel's history. David was known as a man after God's own heart. What do you mean he's an adulterer? He's a murderer? He tried to cover it all up? Like, he's the worst. But God still used him after that event. What's the difference between Saul and David? The difference was repentance or the lack thereof. Saul never repented of his sin. Saul never took accountability for his shortcoming. Saul pointed the finger at other people. Uh, Saul made excuses about why it was justified or why it wasn't that big of a deal and, and it'll be okay and covered it up. He never came clean. But David, on the other hand, like he like totally, I mean, he just lost, he just came clean. He wrote Psalm 51 in response to this. He's like, man, God, against you and you only have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. He's like, renew in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Their response to their shortcomings was the difference in their impact. Saul is known for his failure as a king. He's known for his shortcoming. He's known for not really finishing the job. David's known as a man after God's own heart who really honestly committed worse sins, right? Like by far than Saul ever thought of. Yet we know them so differently because repentance affected their impact. So let me just, let me just ask, maybe there's something in your life that's holding you back from making that impact. Maybe you're getting in your own way. Maybe there's sort of this thing that you're caught up in that you just feel like you can't escape. It's like quicksand sucking me down so I can't progress forward spiritually because I'm stuck in this stuff. I'm stuck in this sin. I'm stuck in this cycle. I'm stuck in this, these terrible decisions that I keep finding myself in. So I can't move forward. I can't impact others because I'm drowning here. So the question as we kind of reflect then is it, that that response is going to affect our impact. We can be like Saul and say, oh, it's not that big of a deal or, oh, it's, you know, God won't ever find out, which is like the worst thing to ever think because he already knows. And we're all, none of us are immune to this either. So it's not like, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll never face that. I'll never be tempted by that. Just like, just, let's just have a view of ourselves that's healthy and normal and say, okay, God, I am weak. God, I have tendencies. God, I have these issues that trip me up. Would you help me in this? If I'm caught in that, would you get me out of that? Would you forgive me? I want to turn 180 degrees. I want to repent to continue to have maximum impact because repentance does affect our impact. So then let's end here, the last couple verses, on kind of a high note, really quick, before we close it off today. Verse 26 of Revelation chapter 2. So he says, at the end of all this, he says, To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So here at the end of this message to the church in Thyatira, Jesus talks about our future impact. So we want our impact here and now to outlive us. Right? That's the idea. I want what I do to, to outlive me. That's the goal. But Jesus points to in the end part of this message that there's even an impact we can have after that like in eternity future. So he talks about two things here that I want to mention really quickly. First, he says, anyone who, who kind of conquers, I will give them authority. Jesus says, the same authority that I have. So as you read later on, and first of all, this is 
Psalm chapter 2, he's quoting Psalm 2 here. He's talking about uh, crushing them like clay pots with an iron rod. That's talking about Psalm chapter 2, talking about the Messiah that is to come who is Jesus. But then later on in Revelation, we read about this period of time in the future where Jesus reigns and rules over the earth. That's going to be pretty cool. Like the perfect form of government is finally going to be here, okay? We haven't found it yet, but one day we will. So when Jesus rules, it talks about us ruling with him. And that's what he's getting at too with this church. I don't know what that's going to look like. Like, are we going to have robes and cool wigs and a gavel? I don't know. Like, I don't, am I going to be called your honor? I don't know what that looks like. All I know is that Jesus says it here, and later on it's explained further in Revelation, for at least a period of time in eternity future, we will rule and reign with Jesus, with the same authority he has. That's impact. Again, I don't know what that looks like, but it's pretty cool. What I find interesting, though, about mentioning this to this church is that John, early on in his life, was very concerned about authority, him being an authority. There's, there's a time in Mark chapter 10 where he and his brother are arguing about who's like Jesus' favorite, basically. So they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, we got a question for you. Can you do us a favor? He's like, what? So this is James and John, and they say, hey, would you have one of us in, in, in your kingdom sit at your right hand of authority and the other brother sit at your left hand? We want to be like number, number twos for you, Jesus. And he kind of says, that's not really my decision anyway, so like, just stop worrying about that. What's really embarrassing, though, is Matthew, he writes about an account similar to this, but he writes that their mom asked Jesus this favor, burn that's embarrassing, right? So Matthew's like, ha I'm going to stick it to John and James. He, they have their mommy ask Jesus if they can sit at the big kid table in heaven. Ha-ha, you know. And luckily, John lives, outlives them all. He writes, you know, his own version of the story. But I think it's ironic, though, that Jesus talks about authority to, to John. He was so worried about it. He's like, hey, guess what? There's enough authority to go around. Like, there's enough spots to go around to have impact later on. The second and final thing he mentions is something called the morning star. What does that mean? He says, to those that overcome, I give them the morning star. Well, there's two things really that that means. First, um, culturally, the morning star is equated um, to the goddess Venus, who's the goddess of victory. But when you read Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I am the morning star about himself. So what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of taking a jab at the culture and saying, hey, victory's not over here. It's not over there. Victory's found in me. They even wrote a song about it, Victory in Jesus. You know that song? What song? What number is that in the hymnal? The hymns of glorious praise. I grew up on that, the hymnal. I used to know like all, what all of them were. I've forgotten in the previous years. My memory's not great. But it's true. There's victory in Jesus, and it's only in him. So it's not in any other thing, any other person, any other situation. The impact that we have is through him. So what Jesus is saying as we close is, hey, I'm the ultimate prize. What you're looking for, what you're seeking, the impact that you want to have ultimately is found only through me. And so when we see that, we know that making an impact is worth the work that it requires. We know that it's worth having integrity even though there's pressure to give in over our lives. We know that the impact that we want to make is worth it. We know that, try, that repenting of our sin is worth giving up our pride for because Jesus is the ultimate prize, and he is worth it. And the impact that we want to make can only be found through him and should only be about and for him. And so if we live that way to make an impact, 
we can do that, and we'll receive the prize, which is Jesus himself.